Welcome to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains who are also human and sometimes better at being humans than saints. I will be sharing my own experiences of being a chaplain and interviewing others to hear their stories and the stories of their families, as well as learning from colleagues we work with in related fields, because it's our own humanity that unites us on this very spiritual journey through a very mortal life. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I appreciate you being willing to talk to us on the podcast. And if you want to just get started by introducing yourself a little bit, we can go from there. Started my journey as a chaplain. I'm um, about 2011 uh, when my husband passed away. And um, I, I had no idea what a chaplain was and um, it was kind of on my journey that as I moved forward trying to help others in the same situation I had been in, you know, my husband being on hospice and everything, um, I felt like I was just kind of led to, um, to become a chaplain because I didn't know you couldn't be, I didn't know a woman could be a chaplain. And I didn't know they had chaplains outside of the military. And so it was a real eye-opener, but I do believe I was led to it. And so I started my training in 2011, like I say, and started right in with hospice uh, my first semester. And um, have been chaplaining ever since. So I've loved it. Um, I've seen the Lord's hand in so many lives. It's one thing to see it in your own, but when you see it in so many others, and you feel His His um, hand in everything you do, it really, really taught me that we're not alone, and that the Lord is very much aware of where we are, what we're feeling, what our fears are, what our strengths are. And um, so I felt blessed. I really felt blessed to be able to do this for so long. That's amazing. You mentioned not knowing that our church had female chaplains or that there were even chaplains outside the military. How did you find that out? How did you discover this? Well, I... um, I, like I say, I wanted to help others in the same situation I was because I felt very alone in taking care of my husband. I felt very alone, and and I felt I had to do it alone, really. I felt, well, that's my husband, and that's what I, I, I do. I take care of him. But as time went on, I realized that maybe I should have included more in it, uh, in his support. I didn't know what to expect a lot um, of the time when things happened I wasn't sure where to turn for help 
And so by the time he passed away, I'd learned so much and had grown so much. And I thought, I don't want somebody else to feel that. So I took a job as a, not a CNA, but for a home health where I sat with the, uh, one family in particular, it was a little old lady. Her husband had Parkinson's and I sat most of the day listening to her talk about her fears and um, just kind of feeling that peace come on over me knowing that I understood what she was feeling and I was very comfortable with it. Well, they put him on hospice and he had a chaplain that came to visit, but I'd leave the room so that they could have privacy. So that's why I found out there were chaplains. But then in my own grief, I went back one, one night for support for myself. And sitting at the table were two women and they were the facilitators and they were chaplains. And I thought, oh, interesting, you know, tell me, tell me about that. How did you get into this and what brought you to this? And they each had their stories and um, I thought, well, that, you know, that just sounds right to me. So I I went to uh, Washoe, it wasn't Washoe, called Washoe at the time, but um, I went to that um, training and um, and was taught how to be more present, how to listen, how to dig for what we call the gem for those that were going through rough times. Tell me about your journey from those moments to now being an endorsed chaplain for the church. Um, well, I've heard, uh, so I'm also a police chaplain. I'm a hospice chaplain and I'm a volunteer police chaplain. And so in both of those, I kind of heard that the church had chaplains and that they they kind of like to know who the chaplain, LDS chaplains were. And somebody said, you know, in those two areas, you might want to check in to um, be, be letting them know and becoming uh, part of that program, so to speak. And um, so I thought, oh, good idea. You know, that might be a good idea. But I was so busy. I was so, I couldn't wait to get out to work. And so I was so busy and I just kept putting it on the back burner. Then one day at, um, when we were at one of our police chaplain meetings, uh, the um, Secret Service asked if some of us would like to be the chaplain for their organization, but you had to be endorsed by a church. And that's what, oh, okay. And so I, I thought about it, but I was so busy, I, I knew I couldn't apply. I, I was busy working, and that's volunteer. And then I hired two, three, three new chaplains at work, and one of them came to me and said, my endorsement letter from the church will be coming soon, and so I just want you to be aware so that when it comes here, you know, um, you'll be watching for it. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. So it came, the letter came, and I read it. And like I say, the next chaplain came on, and 
they had their letter and then the next one I thought you know what I maybe ought to do this and so I applied and but I think the thing about was was that I always knew the Lord was there helping me as I chaplain these families but when I was set apart I really thought oh gosh I really missed something here I know the Lord was with me up to then but this was this was a this was I don't want to say more power but this was his power there was to know that he you know he was there for me in the past was one thing but to be able to have that authority and power from him in that way was was something I wish I'd done sooner have you been to Salt Lake to get your set apart blessing yet you know my state president was the one that set me apart what was that like for you um you know that was truly amazing because um I could just feel that when he put his hands on my head I could just feel that power that you know that came from the Lord it was um this gave me a lot of peace and um I don't know it's just there was just something added on what I was doing what what has that been like for you to take your own grief and and you've done so much work of your own healing I don't mean that it was just raw you've really taken time to have your own support and your own grief but then to transform that through service to others. I feel like I was able to understand better and what they were feeling, and, and yet we all feel different. I mean, we there's a lot of things we feel the same, but there's a lot of difference too. And, and I felt like when I sat with a patient and they were at the end of life with their parent or, or whoever it was, I was able to talk to them about some of those feelings that I might never have thought about. And I was able to get them to speak on things, um, speak on things that uh, maybe they were afraid to, to talk about. Like sometimes I noticed in my own grief, I didn't want to, I don't, I didn't want to broach the, the, the discussion of death. And yet we had to plan a funeral. He was going to die. There was probably some fears. But gosh, if I ask him about this or if I say, well, we need to plan your, fun our, your funeral and, and buy our plot, it was like you're saying, okay, we're done. There's no more hope. But that, so there was a lot of fear in that. I don't want him to feel that. And so, and when I did broach it to, with, to him, that was what he said, oh, so you think I'm going to die? Well, eventually you are. But but it taught me to, um, when you're going through that loss, that um, it's good to talk about those things. You know, and I remember being at times, I remember walking into the kitchen and my husband would be over by the counter and he'd be in deep thought and I would think, What's he doing? What's he thinking about? And this thought would come to my mind, leave him alone. He is, he is, I can't think of the word. He's thinking about his journey and you're on yours. So let him be 
In other words, it was like the Lord was helping him. And I was to stay out of it, and the Lord would help me on my head. And so I learned to teach people, let them have their journey, be there, but be aware when to let them be to, so that the Lord could help them. Um, another one was um, I met a, a, I had a nurse who, who asked me, would I go to this man and his wife and talk, talk to him about death? The man was afraid of dying. Would I go talk to him about death? And I said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll go on over. And so I went on over, and the wife opened the door, and she said, you're not going to believe what happened last night. She said, my husband and I talked about death. And she said it was so spiritual. And we shared our feelings about how we felt about him dying. He felt how, what he felt alike, what he felt like, what his fears were. To me, that was a gift for them. I didn't need to say a word. They'd already done it. But in going through my own journey, I knew how that brought my husband and I closer as well. So basically, having gone through that, and, and not all of them were the same, you know, but I really feel like the more they could talk about that loss, and a lot of times we don't talk about it because we don't want to worry the other person with our fears too, so we don't talk about it. But, but when you do talk about it, it it's, um, those moments are more precious and powerful. It's absolutely one of the things that my husband and I learned through my chaplaincy was how to have conversations about those things. So even though we were sort of midlife at the time, we have set up this pattern, and I tell people this, that we do it every year as part of New Year's. <laughs> While oh. we're, we're both um, off work, we're both focused and rested and relaxed from the holidays. The children are busy with presents and Christmas and all of their own stuff, so they're distracted. And we have this strange space where we can sort of take care of business, but that way we know it's coming. It's super neutral and not overly emotional. It's just one of the things we check off every year. Do we need to update our papers? Is there any conversations we need to have? Our, our, all our documents are still in order and updated. And those kinds of things, we just do it as part of New Year's every year. Oh, I think that's a wonderful idea. Um, I think too, sometimes when, like you said, we don't do, we don't take the time to do that. And when we're in that moment of losing someone, sometimes we're so busy taking care of them that we don't, we miss those moments. We miss just sitting there with each other and talking and just being in the present for what's going on right there. And I think I think that's such a good thing you've started to do so so young in your life. Well, we also learned the hard way how important it was. I learned how to do it through chaplaincy, but we learned the hard way how important it was because my father died from cancer. And so his passing was very slow. There was lots of time to gather. There was lots of time to have conversations. There was lots of time for family to see each other, for him to say the things he wanted, 
for him to make the decisions he wanted and to have all of those hard conversations. But then right after that, my mother was killed by a drunk driver. And we had been primed for months for the death of my father. So then when my mother was killed, it was like, wait, what just happened? what just happened and there and so there was nothing she she was not ready and um as far as those practical things and so we learned like how important it is to have these conversations and and to do it proactively not just in response to a crisis I think that's such a such a good thing to learn by attending chaplaincy. I think it it would help so many more of us um, to learn how to do that listening. I think I think you're blessed to be able to pick that up. What what has been the most unusual experience that you've had in chaplaincy so far? I've had so. Um, like uh, like others, so many wonderful experiences, and and like I say, knowing that the Lord was part of that. Uh, but there was one experience that always stood out in my mind that really made an impact on me. Asking, but this is what comes to my mind. I had a gentleman, and he lived in a low housing, and when I met him, he had a. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe a gallon. I've never seen such a large whiskey bottle. But he had this huge whiskey bottle down by his feet. And um, I mean, smoked, chain smoked. And he, he had served in the Vietnam War. And that Vietnam War had affected him so terribly that he had married at times and had four children, but none of them were in his life anymore. And he was, he'd always been moving his whole life. When I first met with him, he knew what a chaplain was or what they do. And so he invited me to sit down and he started talking about God. And he said, tell me why, why does the Lord give us such a hard such hard problems to live with. He said, it, it's destroyed my life. I mean, my whole life has been focused on this, and I've lost my family. And he, he kind of said, I, I gave up my family so everybody else could have theirs, but I have nothing. And um, he said, I, I don't, and he said, and I don't think the Lord will, I don't think the Lord will co- let me come to him. And, and I thought that was interesting, and I said, well, why wouldn't, why, why do you feel he wouldn't want, he wouldn't bring you to him when you pass? And he said, because of that war. And we, so I talked to him about, you know, the scriptures and how we're to follow the law of the land, we're to help our fellow man, you know, um, love others, and he was a very giving guy I mean he cared a lot about people but um, he just couldn't believe that God would love him or forgive him for what he did he was proud of a book that had three of his stories in it of his experiences 
but he wouldn't open the book. But he would show me the book and I could open it. He had, um, he had um, a picture of the Savior above his bed and every morning he reached up and touched the Savior's feet for um, being able to be there one more day. But he could he just couldn't believe that God would still love him, still love him. So I asked him, you know, I asked him about his faith. He said he was Christian, but I think he was picking up a lot of what other people were feeling, you know. I don't think he had any set religion. Well, I know he didn't. But he was holding on to that and we talked a long time about it and um he shared a few experiences that were just heart-wrenching. And then, I mean, he, he just touched on them, just, but not very much. He couldn't think about it as much. And I remember asking him, if the Lord was sitting next to him, what would he ask him? And, you know, a lot of times we kind of assume we know. Well, his comment was, I would ask him why he gave me that trial. Why I had to live my whole life remembering those people I killed. And um, so we talked a lot, and I never felt like I could get him to that piece, uh, that place of peace. And um, and I prayed about it, and I worked on it. And then he asked me one day. He said, uh, "When I die, will you be there with me?" And I said. Um, I I would try to be there. Um, it doesn't always work that way, but if but if I could, I'd be there as much as I could. And so we talked a lot. We talked a lot. Well, the time came, and he was put on a a pump, you know, for his pain. And I remember walking up to him and leaning into him and whispering, "I'll it takes me a minute to get a hold of myself." He said to me. I leaned into him, and I said, I hope you can feel the Lord's love. I hope you see. So, from the other side, showing their love for you. And he closed my hand. And I left and told him I'd come back in a few hours, and he passed when I left. And he had his brother there, and I wanted them to have time. And I remember afterwards thinking I couldn't get him to that place of comfort. But I, I think I did. When I think about it later, and I prayed a lot about it, Lord, I didn't get him there. And I thought, it's not my dirt. It, it wasn't my duty, you know. It, my job was to be there and do what I did, but it's the Lord who's the one that brings in the peace. And so that was a hard thing for me because I guess I expected it to be that situation to work out the way a lot of them had. But I, but so I questioned myself later on though, as time went on, the Lord blessed me with a little bit of insight about how that man was taken into heaven. I still think of that man, and I still struggle with how hard it was for him 
not to feel that love or not to think that, that God loved him, that anybody loved him. That was my hardest. And that was one I probably learned the most from too. You know, the Lord's in charge. We're just his instruments. That doesn't always work the way we think. And we just have to know that that what we did was enough, you know. You gave it your best and and but I do believe I know other chaplains would say to me, but you taught him to reach to the Lord. He trusted enough in you to find some calm, you know, that in my faith I guess is what they were saying. But so that was um that was the hardest one for me. That was the uh, I always look at it as what was I supposed to learn out of that one? And um, and that's what I did. I just you do your best. You know, I know the Lord was part of it. I just felt so darn bad for that man that he didn't see that for himself until the very end. It's such a beautiful story and such a beautiful example of what love can look like. Because even when he could not believe it, he got to experience it in you, through you, and and ultimately showed so many acts of faith, like reaching to touch the Savior's feet in the picture. What an act of faith that is to... Be in that state and going through that and still to thank God every day that you're alive another day. And how profound is that? And it makes me think actually of the pattern of the, how the ironic priesthood is that physical temporal priesthood and that Melchizedek priesthood is the spiritual priesthood. And it's like he couldn't get to that spiritual side of things even though he so so wanted it but because you were there he had access to the physical and the temporal piece that that he could experience God's love through you even when he felt unworthy of experiencing that spiritually and that is such a beautiful story of healing well I like how you put that thank you yeah, I think that was, I think that's what we do, isn't it, is, I know when I, when I go in, I always look at them as how the Lord looks at them. You look beyond everything else, but to the spirit of that person, you go beyond that physical appearance, and, um, and I think that helped me get through, that helped me to understand, because this was a gentleman that if you saw him on the street, you probably would have walked by, or a lot of people would. But he did have such a sweet spirit about him. I just, he just, I think he had such a good spirit. That's why it was so hard. Was because knowing what he did um, hurt. It hurt him spiritually. It really, it really did hurt his soul. I also love from that story how because he was a military person, he was so open to chaplaincy. And I have seen this a lot where there are sometimes people who don't want chaplains, which is fine and we can be respectful. But I also feel like often in those cases, it's because they're misunderstanding what chaplaincy is. And sometimes just simple, safe, 
non-intrusive conversations can clarify some of that. But so often our military people really have such a solid understanding of what chaplains are and what chaplains can offer and, and what we do that they are so willing and open and receptive when we approach them that those experiences are often so powerful because they're already geared towards it. So even in this situation where he felt, it's, I mean, it wasn't true, but he felt cut off from God because he was a military person, he was receptive to that modality, that venue of ministry in a way that he wouldn't have been otherwise. And that really becomes such a gift of access, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I agree. Um, and, you know, it, it's like you say, it is a lack of understanding for other people, not seeing that. So, and it, and it put a little bit of pressure on me because when I went in and he said, oh, Craig, you're here, sit down here, we need to talk. And I'm going, oh, boy, I hope I don't fail him. You know, when I was newer into my chaplaincy, too, um, and, you know, every once in a while you have little doubts, and am I doing it, you know, am I, am, am I really helping him? Am I making a difference? But what it really boils down to is being that present, being that love for them, and, and just being open to who they are and non-judgmental. And, um, and I think that's a big difference because he'd been through such a, if you remember hearing about the, the Vietnam War, they go over and fight, and they're not sure why they're there, and then they come home, and they're jeered, and they're spit upon, and those who have left the country without fighting, you know, you know, they're okay, you know, yeah, you were the smart ones, you didn't go to war, but these guys who stood up to fight for their country, to fight for other people, even, even while not knowing why they were there, then they come back and they're treated so terribly, I, they're, they're wounded so terribly. Um, that um, I think that does open it up for them to to be receptive to us. Now I've worked with some who, boy, they kept you at a distance. You know, it's kind of like hands off. You can come and see me, but don't talk about the war. And um, and I and I remember the one man I sat with him too, and it wasn't until his pain was so great and they couldn't get any medication, and so I just sat with him until the medication came on and until he was calm and then I got up to leave thinking he was asleep and all of a sudden he opens up and he shares such graphic details just kind of like he was out of his body and he shared it and then and then a day or so later he passes and I'm thinking wow you can see why that man pushed people away because I can't imagine living the way they did, the way they had to fighting a war, and then coming back to life, and that's so much in them. I don't know, my, I, you know, I think I've learned to appreciate them so much more for um, the sacrifices that they have made, and they're my favorite. They're my favorite. In some of the people that we work with, there is such trauma and the military and people who have been through war obviously there's such examples of that and that's a lot of what i do i'm not military but responding to war zones clinically and then 
through disaster sites and different things as a chaplain. And recently I was called about, called to respond to a stampede in Korea where about a hundred people were killed and then there were just countless survivors. And, and in that situation, one of the things that happened was sort of this institutional trauma or betrayal trauma where people in the city where the stampede happened were given services and cared for very well and 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 that was that was good i mean it was such so tragic what happened but it was good they received <laughs> such supportive services but there were many 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 people who traveled from rural areas to get to the city for this event where the stampede happened and those people then when they went home did not have access to services and so that's why they called me was to help set that up and help organize that and train some people and and meet with these people as a group and the trauma of i went through a trauma and also witnessed other people dying and they were not even trained for war or had been exposed to anything like that, even though that was not a war situation, but just trauma. And it, it is so, so difficult when this is not a situation, death or war or disasters like this, it's not a situation where we can say, what you're worried about isn't actually happening. Like, let's help you calm down, you'll feel better focus on what's actually happening. These are situations with our military people and with traumatized people and in different situations like that, where what happened really was that bad. How did that affect you? That had to, that had to be tough for you seeing that. I think that's a good question. And I think it's something that's really important for chaplains that like you said, mm -hmm. with your grief, that you get your own support, whether that's having your own therapist on on call, like on retainer, that, hey, I just need to check in, or whether that's uh, a group support uh, somehow, like we have, we have our other chaplains in the church and our annual gatherings and things like that. I also am super close to my peers, my colleagues who were in CPE with me, and I love being able to talk with them or, or check in with them um, or when I hear from them. And I think I will always just love them as brothers. They, It was such a powerful experience going through CPE and a positive experience for us, which we worked at so intentionally and finding safe people to say, hey, I just really need to be present with someone else, even if we can't tell details because of our work, right? Sometimes it's hard because of confidentiality to even tell someone, hey, I need help with this. But but to to hold space with other people who are also in this work, like counselors and chaplains, where we really hear some very, very difficult stories sometimes. Or I, I work in hospitals as well, and I see terrible, terrible things in the ER. And um, what, what, what do you do with that? Or the years that I worked in the NICU, I remember every single one of those babies that I worked with or that I held as they passed or carried after they passed. And 
there's just so, so much in that to use not, it kind of goes back to what I said before about the Aaronic and the Melchizedek, right? That pattern is set for us that I need spiritual support. I'm relying on the Lord. I know that it is Heavenly Father loving people through me, that it's not actually me doing what I do, but then on the physical Aaronic end of things, that in this temporal setting, it is me who's the one showing up. And it is me who witnesses these things or goes through these things. Mm-hmm. And I think it could take a toll, can it? Uh, that's why I think it's so important. Like you say, your CPE people, um, they're the ones that understand. I, I don't think a lot of people, I don't, I don't know that a lot of people can hold that space for you like another chaplain can. Because they they kind of get it, and what I mean by that is sometimes when you'll you'll talk, I'll talk to a nurse or somebody somebody about something and how something affected me, and they just kind of, oh yeah, well those things do happen, you know, and they just kind of blow it off, and you're going, okay, you know, you know, I I just needed somebody to let me to let me put that out there so that I could release that and not keep it in all the time. And um, because I think it does affect us. I think it is. It does affect us if we're not able to to share it. I know one time I was at the police department. I had gone up to the hospital, and a baby had died in the crib, and the dad was taking care of him. And when I was done, you know, I was up there with him for a couple of hours. And when I was done, I came out, and I thought, you know, I'm so glad that I didn't fall apart because I didn't know how I'd be going to a child. And and when I saw the child in the hospital and he was laying on that bed, he looked like he was sleeping, but the poor mother, oh, was beside herself. And the dad was, he was even worse. And, and she reached out to me and grabbed me and I held her and I held her for the longest time. So I held her and I walked with him when they went outside for a bed and I advocated for them to be able to have that time with that baby and hold that baby as long as they needed. And and then to talk to the police officer who had to go to the home. And then they were checking in to, to see if there was foul play. So I had to not only work with the, the family, but the, the policeman who had to go to the home and and, and deal with that anguish, and he wasn't sure how to handle that, you know. And then those who had to investigate to make sure it wasn't foul play. And I left that hospital, it was like 3 in the morning, and I thought, oh, well, I did that pretty well. Oh, I didn't fall apart. I thought I, I would. I did really well. And so, I, you know, I went home, and I thought, I can handle this. Well, the interesting thing is we had a chaplain meeting the next night, uh, the police chaplain, and... And I reported on that visit, and I had made my notes, and I said, I'm going to read them because it's just easier. I couldn't get the first word out, and I started to just sob, and I thought, where did that come from? I thought I handled this so well, but I didn't. And so I was so grateful that those men, police uh, chaplains, 
were there and some held my hand, some put their arms around me and I just wept. Now, that surprised me because I didn't think I would it, but I really realized that, you know, we do hold on to them and we're not really doing all that well. And so we do need to be able to put that out there and have somebody hear us and support us. And I, I was just amazed. I was just amazed how that helped me when I thought I was doing well. So I think these chapters are wonderful. Um, you know, we meet monthly with the police chaplains. We go over it. Uh, it is so good to have that support because I think, I think people would burn out. I think people would stop being chaplains if they had to keep it in all the time. That's just my opinion. Absolutely. And vicarious trauma is a very real thing. And caring for ourselves is so, so important. And, you know, with culture and society today, sometimes when we try to talk about self-care, it so quickly slips into self-indulgence. And as Latter-day Saints, you know, we're supposed to be self-reliant and strong and and shoulder to the wheel and so it feels so counterintuitive but one of my favorite things just maybe it's because i'm a convert but one of my favorite things about the savior is how much he loved to take naps jesus was a fan of naps jesus was very good at going away from the crowd taking time to care for himself to rest to have conversations with god to to keep his own, like, this is the savior. And he's still doing this work to develop his faith, to restore himself physically so he can do this spiritual work. He feels all the feelings. I mean, that's what Gethsemane is all about, right? It's not just advocating for us, but he's literally pouring out his feelings. And so that example of how he is so good at going away and going apart from the ministry and taking time to replenish himself so that he can keep going, that he literally takes breaks to eat. Sometimes I have days where I'm so busy and I think, oh my goodness, I forgot to eat today. And the mm. Savior is like, hey, I just resurrected. I want some fish. Like... <laughs> That is so true. What an example he is to us, isn't he? Such love. Such love for not for not only others, but for our Heavenly Father and for himself. I mean, to be able to understand what we feel and be that example of how we must take that time as well. I love the scriptures for that. It reminds us. Such a, such a good... A comfort I think to me because there are times where I think I can look back on my life and see the progress that I made and I am so grateful for what the Lord has done in my life that the Lord wanted to rescue even me and and this this progress I've made in my life that the evidence of him in my life but also at the same time I am so, so human. And so having that reminder and that balance of both the Aaronic and the Melchizedek of, of 
the physical and the spiritual, of the temporal and the eternal, and knowing that that's all a part of me in those ways and following that example of the Savior in caring for others, even those that others might ignore or disagree with or not want to help or not even notice, but then also caring for myself in that same way too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you for reaching out and um, giving me an opportunity to testify of this work and, and what a blessing it is to be able to be the Lord's hand, be able to learn how to love like he loved. And um, I have such great gratitude the opportunity that he's given me to be able to do this. I have learned so much. I I think sometimes our trials are so hard. I, I, I know I mentioned to my family that um, the hardest trial was losing my husband. It was very hard. But I cannot say that I could have learned some of these things any other way than I did this way. And um, I'm grateful for the Lord for teaching me that even though it's not the way I wanted, but it definitely uh, taught me a lot of being a chaplain. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you. You as well. Thank you, Emily, for reaching out. Well, thank you. What got you into this, doing podcasts? I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. I just thought, I was thinking about how I was thinking about how there is that misunderstanding about chaplains sometimes and who we are and what we do, but I was also thinking about how it is hard for me because I have, my work is international, my home is in Oklahoma, I'm a convert, I have young children so I can't go to the October trainings, so I am missing all these connections with the other chaplains of my own faith. And so I just thought, we, there are so many of us that are international. We're not all just in Salt Lake or in Utah. And so what if there was a way to just share conversations and, and other people could learn sort of who we are and what we do, but we can also get to know each other better just simply through conversation. And it just kind of unfolded from there. Oh, that's great. Well, I definitely think you were led. You were inspired. I think so, and I'm, I'm so grateful to Tammy and, and the church for, for letting us move forward with this project and just to document some of our stories. I am very grateful. Oh, yes. Well, what a privilege for you and what a privilege for us to be able to hear these stories. And um, I learned from so many people. Um, some have such an eloquent way of speaking, and you, you're one of them. And, and some of us, words aren't really our best, but um, we have other talents in other ways. But uh, I think you've got a great talent here. Oh, thank you. And you were so brave to come on, and your story was lovely. I so appreciate you. And it was good to get to meet you, even if over the phone. <laughs> you too. You too, Emily. Well, you have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains, even those of us who are very human and still learning to become saints. You can follow us by subscribing to the podcast on any podcast player. Thank you.